Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. When our kids were little, Ardell and I had a group of friends in Arkansas who liked to play music together. Every so often, we'd set up chairs in somebody's living room or maybe on the porch when the weather was nice. Someone would kick off a song and everybody else would join in on whatever instrument they'd brought along, even if the instrument was their voice. Dennis played an old upright bass with a handful of a friend's ashes rustling inside it. Deanna could play anything from Irish reels to Bach concertos on her violin. But Bonnie used the very same circle to teach herself fiddle almost from scratch. There might be a mandolin or a lap dulcimer, and there were almost certainly way more guitars than any responsible bluegrass concert master will allow in her little orchestra. But most importantly, there were no tryouts. All levels of musicianship and expertise were welcome, otherwise I'd never have learned enough to just strum along. The only criterion for joining that circle was a desire to join that circle. Actually, that's not quite right. You had to take one more step. You had to make your desire incarnate. You had to take your seat and take part in the making of the music. At some point, that circle became an image of the church for me. Not just because every now and then, between the John Prine and Beatles tunes, somebody would belt out standing in the need of prayer or I'll meet you in the morning on the bright river, by the bright riverside. And actually, to this day when I hear I'll fly away, I expect it to roll straight into, they call it that good old Mountain Dew, and them that refuse it are few. Y'all know that one? I'll hush up my mug if you'd fill up my jug with that good old Mountain Dew. It's a medley I haven't quite convinced Kristen and the choir to take up. But, but that music circle was an image of church for me because what's required first is that you simply take your seat and give it a go adding your song and your voice to everybody else's. It's not about performance, it's about participation. And if that's an image of the church, I think it's an image of baptism as well. When Jesus stepped into that line of people to be baptized by John at the Jordan, in spite of John's shock and indignation that he would do such a thing, and in spite of the descending spirit as a dove and the voice from heaven and all, in spite of all of that... Before it was anything of cosmic significance, Jesus' baptism was a simple matter of stepping into line with a bunch of ordinary sinners, wasn't it? People who'd come to confess and repent and hopefully find a little cleansing and forgiveness in the process. But lots of us may share John's question, which is essentially, what the heaven are you doing here, Jesus? You're not supposed to have any sins to wash away. Now, I think part of our confusion, and John's, is over the centuries we lost sight of what baptism is at its core. Over the centuries, baptism became an increasingly individual affair. It was increasingly about the state of an individual's soul before God. But every time I return to the baptism of Jesus, it seems like he saw this tendency in us coming and tried to address it at the outset. In Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, Jesus steps conspicuously in line to be baptized 
And when all three synoptic gospels recount something, it suggests to me that that story, the story that follows, just isn't going to make much sense without this one. Now, there's a personal element in that baptism scene, just as surely as that music circle expanded one particular person at a time when someone new took their seat. All of those individuals were there for the cleansing ritual John the Baptist had become known for, a ritual that had to do with getting free somehow from the the sins that continue to break our world and our lives apart. But when Jesus responds to John's question with, It is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. I think that us really means us. Which is to say, Jesus and John and Jennifer and Joshua and all the others at the river that day were somehow fulfilling this righteousness work together. Which I also think is to say that whatever sins each individual had to come to terms with in their life, whatever failures they needed to repent of and turn in a different direction from, this wasn't a matter of personal worthiness before God. It was about making the world a little more right. Because righteousness is akin to rightness, just as holiness is akin to wholeness. Each person in that line seeking healing and forgiveness and release from what was most broken in their lives was seeking that healing not just for their own sake, but for the person they were standing next to in line, right? Sin wasn't a matter of personal impurity. It's it's been a matter of broken relationships since those archetypal breakdowns way back in the garden. We address our sins in this community called the church so that our lives will be in fuller harmony with all the lives around us. This is, of course, the work Jesus was up to, isn't it? John may have had the same wrong idea about Jesus' so-called sinlessness that we do. It wasn't that he never had a naughty thought or didn't experience the full range of human emotions. And it's certainly not that he stayed insulated from the violence and pain of this world, is it? The difference is that Jesus stepped into line next to us in this embodied relationship with us, but in him, somehow... None of the violence of the, and pain of the world got returned to the world as violence and pain. And in his life, he showed us that we don't set the world more right by keeping our individual selves pure and separate from that world. The world's made a little more right, a little more righteous, as more of us find ourselves in line together, learning to give away to the world whatever goodness our little lives might have to offer even if the world simply offered us pain. Last Wednesday evening, Dana Sue Purser circled up a bunch of chairs in her living room, not to play music, but so our Sacred Ground group could meet. Sacred Ground is the Episcopal Church's anti-racism curriculum. And I am so grateful to have been offered a seat with the people Anna Catherine Word and Elizabeth Crosby brought together in that room. We've been learning and struggling together since last fall to understand how the particular sin that is racism has made its way into our lives in particular ways in this country over the centuries. These are hard conversations. These people have, had been, these people have been showing me that they can be had with truthfulness and vulnerability and kindness. Well, this week we were struggling with some ideas in a book by a great 20th century theologian named Howard Thurman titled 
Jesus and the Disinherited. It's a brilliant book. I can't recommend it highly enough to you if you're curious. In it, Thurman says that one way the weak have always defended themselves from those in power is by deception. He notes we can even observe this in nature. A mother bird will pretend to have a broken wing to distract a predator from her young. He says the cuttlefish will, try, will release fluid from its sepia bag, clouding the water around it so it can escape. But for human beings, he says, there's a cost in using deception to protect ourselves. The penalty of deception, says Thurman, is to become a deception. The penalty of deception is to become a deception. Look around this world and tell me it's not still true. Now the word Thurman uses for the alternative to this deceptive life that Jesus presents us with is sincerity. He describes sincerity as this kind of action that arises truthfully in a person. It's based on one's relationship to God, not in response to whatever power is exercising control over us. But its purpose is ultimately not to make each of us pure before God in our motives. The purpose of learning this way of sincerity or truthful action so that it breaks the chain of hypocrisy and violence by refusing to let the powerful determine who you are and how you'll respond to the world. Thurman was a mentor of Dr. King's. Maybe it's not so hard to draw a line from his theology to those trainings in nonviolent resistance in which people learned how with their very lives and their bodies not to let a violent and unjust world determine who they were and how they would respond to it. And the hypocrisy and injustice of that world were exposed powerfully in their witness. But those heroic forms of faith are really just extreme instances of, of simpler everyday struggles to live lives of healing and wholeness for all of us, aren't they? Hurt people hurt people, the old saying goes. Which is to say, my inclination is to pass on the hurts I receive. But I do believe there's a way of sincerity in which, with your help, with Jesus as our guide and companion on the way, maybe our actions don't spring so much from my hurts today as they did yesterday. Isn't that what breaking the power of sin in our lives has got to mean? Sincerity, like baptism, can seem like a matter that's mostly between one individual soul and God, but in truth it's a way of letting something else besides deception and violence drive our actions and our relationships with other people in a violent and deceptive world. And in the end, whatever forgiveness or repentance or grace baptism makes available to our lives, it's not just for our own sake. It's for the healing of this world that God still loves and still hopes to make a little more whole through your life and through my life and through the life of little Everett Schofield whom we'll baptize once this preacher stops trying to explain why we must do such a thing. Friends, I think Jesus stepped into that line that day at the Jordan for the same reason Everett will be baptized into the community of Jesus today. Jesus stepped into line with all those other people because the only way we can break some of the hold a violent and broken world has on our lives is together. Everett needs us. We need Everett because we can't begin to set right what's gone wrong in us and in our world all by ourselves. 
In baptism, we take our place among a bunch of ordinary sinners who are trying to make a little better music with their lives in this world. Maybe Everett's first contribution to the church as a Christian today is just to remind each one of us that there's a seat in this circle for you too. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.